Welcome to the Water Channel podcast, a series of conversations on water, food and agriculture. We feature stories and insights that are defining our present and are shaping our future. I am Abraham Abhishek. The Nile is one of the most recognized rivers the world over. No matter where you grew up, Mongolia, Sri Lanka, Ghana, Europe, Canada, Bolivia, chances are you have heard of it. You probably read about it in school. The Nile is a transboundary river. Part of it originates in Ethiopia, the other part in Lake Victoria, which is shared between Kenya, Uganda and Tanzania. These two branches meet in Sudan and then run down to Egypt. Together, the whole river system also runs through or along the borders of Congo, Burundi, Rwanda and South Sudan. But it is very likely that the image you associate most strongly with the river are the pyramids and the country you associate most strongly with it is Egypt. Now, there are many reasons why this is so, why there is this downstream mentality. Some of those reasons have led to water-sharing disputes between the different riparian countries, which over the years have assumed many shapes, forms and dimensions. But the Nile is not just a natural resource that countries fight over. It is a river, a major, huge river that is a key source of water and food to communities all along its course. In fact, a big part of it runs through areas so dry that there would not have been any habitation there if it was not for the Nile itself. What this also means is that the Nile is a big shaper of the culture, customs and outlook for hundreds of millions of people. Today, we are lucky to have on our podcast Emanuela Fantini from IIT Delft Institute of Water Education in the Netherlands. For nearly six years now, he has shaped and steered a project called Media, Science and Diplomacy in the Nile Basin. The project studies the role of science and media in shaping the narrative around this contentious transboundary river and what kind of effect that has on conflicts, disputes and diplomacy that surround it. The project has also gone on to document and share everyday life around the Nile, the kind of relationships regular people have with the river in their daily lives. Emanuela, thanks a lot for talking to us. You've been working on this project for almost six years. In course of it, you must have met, interacted with, worked with uh, people from different Nile riparian countries. It is a very difficult task, a very difficult question to answer. But uh, could you give us a snapshot of uh, the different things that the Nile means to different people along its course? To be honest with you, no, I cannot. <laughs> As you say, it's uh, perhaps a too difficult question and also I think it would not pay justice to the variety and the plurality of meanings, uses and practices eh, that people associate to the river. Not to forget that the river is not only for humans eh, but it's a natural ecosystem so there are also animals, other living creatures that depend on the Nile that live on the Nile. So what I can tell you and what I've learned is, for instance, that even the river itself is named as different name. Uh, uh, in Ethiopia, the Blue Nile is called Abai. The Ethiopian, when they look at the Nile River, in my opinion, what they see nowadays is a dam. It's not even a river. Uh, they see the Grand Ethiopian Renaissance Dam because that's what is visualized in public spaces in Ethiopia. So it's not even the water, it's just the infrastructure. And of course, um, I think in Egypt, eh, maybe people think about the, the Delta, 
agriculture or think about water for their domestic uh, consumption eh? because they they depend on on the Nile River for almost all kind of uh, water uses and, and supply. The Nile itself, uh, it is not the longest river in the world. It is not the river that carries the most amount of water. It is also not the most significant river commercially or the river system that sustains the largest number of people. But still, when we talk about transboundary rivers, transboundary waters, and all the connotations that come with it, you know, conflict, cooperation, etc., the Nile is the first river that comes to mind. Is that just me or uh, is that a more widely held impression? And uh, if yes, why do you think that is? Why is the Nile so representative as a transboundary water resource? Yeah, I don't think it's only you. Definitely it is me as well. I'll give you a coffee mug quote from an historian, a Norwegian historian, who's also been fascinating by the Nile River. His name is Terget Vet. And I remember that when I was interviewing him for, uh, for the podcast that we did, uh, The Sources of the Nile, he, once, he said that, that the Nile is African water, but the world river. And I think the reason why uh, the Nile is so iconic when it comes to transboundary international rivers is because indeed it's part of the imaginary of the culture not only of the people who live on the banks of the river but of a broader of i would say a global community i, I can think of myself i i'm italian i was raised in italy i went to uh, primary school in italy and i remember my first uh, lesson in history okay you have prehistory but then when you start to study the great civilization at least in Italy and I guess in Europe is more or less that we all begin with ancient Egypt and what you learn is about the Nile and how it was fertilizing the soil and how the river sustained uh, such an important uh, civilization so I think the symbolic cultural meaning of the Nile is perhaps something unique. We, uh, we were discussing earlier about tourism. I think modern tourism was also born on the, um, along the Nile River eh, with the first cruises. So again, something eh, which belongs to not only to the people who live in the basin, but to a global community. Looking at the Nile as a transboundary river and uh, thinking about all the disputes that surround it, Here's a simplistic take on what the nature of that dispute essentially is. For the longest time, Egypt and perhaps Sudan got the lion's share of the water rights, the rights to use the Nile waters. And this was largely because there was a power differential between Egypt and Sudan on the one hand um, and everyone else on the other. And now that the other riparian countries are gaining power, they are gaining influence, they're kind of flexing their muscles, uh, they're asserting their own claims on the Nile River on the Nile waters and that is essentially what the dispute around the Nile waters is at the moment. So that's the take. What are the holes? What are the gaps? What are the inconsistencies with respect to facts in this particular view? No, I think that's a, that's a fair representation of what is going on in the, in the Nile Basin. Of course, one issue is, think about Sudan for instance. Is it a, an upstream or a downstream country? Of course, it's a downstream 
in relation to Ethiopia, but for Egypt, it's a it's an upstream uh, country, and and indeed, this is one of the issues when it comes to the Grand Ethiopian Renaissance Dam. For instance, the main co concern by Egypt is, of course, uh, the dam that Ethiopia is building, but one of the main concern is how the dam will allow Sudan to irrigate the plains that are uh, and use Nile water to irrigate the plains. So beside Egypt and countries like Ethiopia or Rwanda Burundi who are at the sources of the Nile, all the other countries are both are always downstream of someone of another country and, and upstream. So um, but I think it's fair so beside that those cases I think that's a, that's a fair representation and indeed it's what has been going on in the past years uh, inside the Nile Basin Initiative, which is the main uh, intergovernmental uh, platform for both technical and political cooperations among the Nile countries. So indeed there is this new comprehensive uh, framework uh, agreement, which has been uh, ratified mostly by upstream countries because it re uh, the new agreement redefines uh, indeed the, the rights um, uh, of the users of the of the river, and as you say, the the Nile River was before that agreement, which, by the way, has not been ratified uh, by Egypt and uh, and Sudan exactly uh, because of this reason, because it shifted what used to be called the um, colonial order, which was somehow uh, crafted by the, under the British colonial rule, during which the Nile was essentially managed, thinking about the cotton plantations of, of the British in Sudan and of course in Egypt. So there was this, let's call it downstream mentality, all the waters need to be challenged channel there, which of course was challenged by the, the new framework crafted under the Nile Basin initiative. Mm -hmm. Would it be right to say that the current discourse around the Nile is centered around, uh, has its fulcrum resting upon the GERD uh, or the Grand Ethiopian Renaissance Dam? Is that correct? And um, going ahead, given what the current situation is, given the positionality of the different parties, what do you think is an amicable solution to this? You have 30 seconds to provide a definitive solution to this very important and very complex geopolitical issue. Um, so what we learned by studying the role of uh, media and science communication in, in conflicts and cooperation along the Nile River, and of course, in particular, uh, um, around the issue of the Grand Ethiopian Renaissance Dam are, I would say, two things. The first is that technically a solution, an agreement uh, on the Grand Ethiopian Renaissance Dam is not that difficult to reach. Eh? It's a matter of agreeing on how, for instance, to measure what we mean by drought, and therefore agree on certain level uh, in terms of filling the basin of the dam or water that uh, has to flow 
downstream depending on the on the climate and on, on the evolution of the of the climate so and of course then it's also an issue of operating the grand ethiopian renaissance dam in a collaborative way in a coordinated way with the other dams there are downstreams in in sudan or uh, in Egypt up to the high Assun Dam. So I think uh, what we learn, especially from technical people, is that a solution to that problem, uh, of course, it, it requires negotiation, but can be reached. The problem is that the, the dam and the river are loaded, as we discussed earlier, with political meanings, with uh, symbolism, which is also associated to either political project or national identities, that make it very hard and difficult to to negotiate. Because, of course, we can maybe negotiate the shares of water among the two of us, but negotiating your own identity or your own political vision and aspiration it's, it's much more difficult and it's much more difficult also to agree and, and find uh, a common ground. So that's why I think understanding this is of course the first thing eh? to really learn how other people think and um, think about the river, which are their dreams, aspiration, cultural meanings that they associate to the river because without that understanding it would be even impossible to start the, the negotiation on this more political, cultural, identitarian dimension of the river or of its infrastructure like the Grand Ethiopian Renaissance Dam and the name itself already tells a lot how can you negotiate your renaissance it's very hard eh? but it should be done. <laughs> you mentioned earlier in the conversation the Nile Basin Initiative. What has been its role, not only in the context of the most current ongoing disputes, but in general over its lifetime? What has been its role and how effective or ineffective has it been in fostering cooperation among the different riparian countries? We've been working with, um, with the Nile Basin initiatives, uh, particularly given the scope of our project, uh, we've been working with them on training uh, journalists, in promoting um, communication uh, and exchange between journalists and, uh, and scientists. I see two added value of the NBI. The first one is, is indeed uh, thinking and promoting a basin-wide approach, view. Eh? And you have also many spillover of this uh, uh, basin-wide approach. You can think of InfoNile um, as a media house or The Niles, uh, another magazine which is uh, also made by journalists from an editorial team of journalists coming from different Nile Basin countries or the Nile Basin discourse, a sort of civil society uh, partner of the NBI. So I think this, um, this Basin-wide uh, approach is there. Uh, of course, it's still uh, a viewer perspective of uh, people who are already familiar, who are already 
uh, working maybe on water on the Nile, water management, uh, manager, water expert, researchers, journalists. Eh? But the other important leg is I think the, the technical cooperation also not at the sub-basin level. So there are ongoing uh, projects, projects involving not all the countries of the basin, eh, but maybe at sub-basin level, so among different uh, countries. And I think this is another um, important role, because if you, um, of course, it's one basin, but on the other side, it's also, it can be difficult to make it tangible for someone in Egypt or in Rwanda that they share the same water. I think it's easier for uh, someone in Uganda to collaborate or to have some joint project with neighboring countries. Right? And so maybe the, the sub-basing uh, scale when it comes to implementing um, projects, irrigation, uh, hydropower, is the most uh, effective and relevant one because that's the scale at which you can indeed physically, materially understand that you are sharing a river. Interesting. Um, moving on to international law and the concept itself of international law. Uh, and of course, I don't have a background in international law. I was just reflecting upon the term. Uh, from the point of view of a common person, law is law. It is a rule which is part of the ground rules of the society or whichever entity we are talking about. With regards to the Nile as a transboundary resource, we have all these international conventions and treaties which uh, sort of make for what we call international law. Uh, there is the Helsinki Rules, the European Water Convention, the United Nations Water Convention, um, the Berlin Water Resources Rules, and there are probably many more which uh, I do not know about. So essentially all these things invoke among the riparian countries the duty to cooperate over shared water resources. At the same time, nations are sovereign entities. They do not have uh, obligations. They don't have a compulsion to follow international law. So one can say that international law is not enforceable. So given that, how important are international laws? And you can think of specific ones in the Nile context. How important are they? Despite the fact that they are not enforceable, what do they bring to the table, if not crime and punishment? I'm not a lawyer, so I will give you an answer from a um, political scientist perspective on, on this. First of all, I think that if I think of the Nile, international law, it's important and it's good as it set principle, and which is already something important. Eh? We there are principles that are universally acknowledged and agreed upon to which government subscribes. So then the problem is even before enforcing how you move from general how you translate those general principles into norms or framework for sharing waters. Eh? What, what does it mean, the principle of um, equitable uh, share or the principle or the principle of uh, not significant harm that should not be caused to the downstream. So all these principles are indeed important because they are the basis of our uh, agreement. But 
the challenge starts even before enforcing them on agreeing okay how do we translate those principles into practice and then if i think about denial the other challenge is um indeed which are the the body the agreement the framework that should um enforce or address a dispute and at the moment that's the main issue when it comes to the grand ethiopian renaissance dam eh? because the, uh, the egyptian government the sudanese government they would like to have um, a legally binding treaty with a sovereign national authority that can enforce it in terms of deciding and operating the dams while ethiopia refused that and eh? they said we will uh, deal with ad hoc uh, bodies if there is a, if a dispute uh, arise so there is the first the issue of translation of principle into policies norms um, and framework for water management water sharing and then there is indeed the issue of um, which is the body the authority that can enforce and, and let me make a final point on sovereignty so if I think about the Nile River um maybe it's not a lesson uh, i would i wouldn't call it a lesson but an experience that can be shared for me is the experience of the european union which was born uh, after the second world war as european uh, economic commission this was one leg and then there was the leg of the european uh, commission on the coal and steel so what the, the european countries did they after the second world war they accepted to uh, give up to their sovereignty on the coal and the steel the two uh, main resources that had been used for war and by giving up sovereignty on those two resources and eh? they started to build what is today there was the first step to build what today is the european union and, and those were countries eh, that just fought each other germany and france the netherlands and germany italy england and eh, they were at war so would it be possible to uh, give up national sovereignty on the nile river and to let the river and the and its dam in infrastructure that needs to be operated in a coordinated manner in a cooperative way at the supranational level maybe at the at the basin level you are a political scientist you are from the academia and uh, you look for nuance so i would like to ask you about something which i don't think is a very nuanced idea which is uh, bandied around quite a lot and that is water wars it is a nice alliteration. Both words start with a W, so it's very catchy, sounds very catchy. And central to the concept of water wars is that they're imminent. I've been hearing for a very long time that the next war is going to be on water. So, A, this has not quite happened. I come from India and we uh, fight with our neighbors, Pakistan, over all sorts of things, over the stupidest of things. But uh, there has never been any significant conflict around the sharing of uh, the numerous transboundary rivers that we share, uh, such as the Indus. So, given this, how imminent do you think are water wars? When are they going to take place? Please give us a date. A date. I, um, I agree with you that uh, water wars is uh, indeed um, 
something that goes very well on media headlines because of not only because of the alliteration war war but also because if you think about eh, it put together two uh, terms which are sharply in contrast war which is about death and water which is about life so that's why i think it uh, especially editors eh, find it a catchy idea because it's something that uh, can indeed attract and elicit strong emotion and feelings on the other side as you said it's also pretty inaccurate because maybe the real news is that in spite of having been announced for in the past 30 years because i remember kofi annan secretary general of the un saying the next war in the next century the water uh, the wars will be fought over water instead of oil so the real news is that water wars have not happened some people might say yet but if we look at what's going what is going on in ukraine or to stay in the nile basin in ethiopia there is unfortunately a civil war or the war in ukraine i don't think the reason is is water but it's political it's a political reason the the civil war in ethiopia has um, political reasons behind there is a conflict between uh, political elites there is um, an identity component in terms of uh, struggle and conflict between different nationalities and of course then water comes into the picture but not as a source of conflict i would say as a collateral as a victim of the conflict so maybe the wars are not fought for water but i would say the wars most of the time are fought against water against life against for instance the farmer that uh, in ethiopia could not plow could not uh, farm their fields and as a consequence of the war uh, now uh, they're they're starving but that's so water is a collateral is a victim of the war is never a source of war at least in my view interesting <laughs> talking about convenient catchphrases and how the media amplifies them uh, this is perhaps a good point in the conversation to talk about your project that you have been helming you have been managing and shaping for the past 6 uh, years or so and um, as i understand it is a lot about science uh, it is a lot about media in the context of uh, the transboundary river which is the nile so if you could give us some broad brush strokes of the project how has the project aimed to uh, over the years how has it aimed to improve the understanding of citizens of policy makers whoever the stakeholders are around the nile river or uh, around the nile basin in general yes so what we did in um, in our project called open water diplomacy with the idea of opening up this field of water diplomacy that might be perceived as as closed as secret as diplomacy happened behind the curtain so we wanted to explore its public dimension by looking at the public dimension of water diplomacy by looking in particular at the role of media and and science communication Uh, we have been working with uh, journalists and researchers from different Nile Basin countries to do mostly three things first to study the role 
and uh, of media in science communication in water conflict and cooperation along the Nile River because there were no previous studies and analysis trying to understand okay how do the media talk represent and picture the the Nile River second we uh, provided some trainings initially we, we thought okay let's train journalists on water issues and scientists on media and communication skills but then we realized later that it was of course we did and we started with those type of training but then we realized that what was particularly interesting was also to bring them together and give uh, so to let them know each other interact with each other and also get joint training and and third what we did by bringing journalists and uh, um, researchers together we supported them in co-producing in producing together um, communication outputs uh, we did podcasts uh, we started we we give support to the birth of infonile a geojournalist platform which now it's walking <laughs> on its own legs thanks to africa water journalist we um, we published a handbook and handbook on uh, media in water conflict and cooperation targeting uh, journalists we did a photo story photojournalist project called everyday nile which in, in using and mobilizing the the power of photos to tell story and to to elicit uh, emotions um, what we learn what we mostly learn from the research is that the, the way so the research was done by a multinational and multidisciplinary teams of researchers coming from Egypt, Sudan, Ethiopia and Italy because when myself and a colleague from uh, the University of Johannesburg in um, South Africa, Witz, uh, his name is Eugenio Gagliardone. So what we did, what we discovered was that uh, one of the main findings and conclusion is that the, when it comes to mainstream media and we did analysis of media in Egypt, Sudan, Ethiopia, Uganda and global media like Al Jazeera or The Guardian, the, the analysis, the, the narratives are caught in what we call the nation trap. It's still the, the idea that when it comes to the Nile River, there are those states which are homogeneous entity each one has its own national interest eh? and we always see Ethiopia against Egypt or uh, Sudan and uh, Egypt against or trying to collaborate so but the nation state as the main central unit L there is very little question and debate on how for instance the Nile River the water of the Nile River is distributed inside within those countries how this national interest is formed is created so this is for instance and then what we tried to do was to try to break or get out of this uh, of such nation trap by promoting transboundary or 
transdisciplinary collaborations between journalists and, and researchers. And of course, what we learn is that you can do that at the, um, at the margins, not at the center of the stage. First, because maybe it's a niche <laughs> topic, um, but also because I, we, we haven't mentioned it yet, but when it comes to uh, media, science communication, research in the Nile Basin, which is a highly politicized and securitized river, the big elephant in the room is, of course, freedom of expression, freedom of research. And that's why, for instance, our colleagues, journalist colleagues, uh, uh, from Ethiopia, Sudan, Egypt, Egypt, were asking us, please, let's not use this water war frame, because as soon as the river is uh, translated or framed as an issue of security, national security, then our freedom of expression, our marge of maneuver shrank. And there are immediately red lines that we cannot uh, overcome, huh? that we cannot pass. Um, and it becomes very difficult to get access to, to data, to, to get people, uh, to get interviews. Huh? People don't want to, to risk, they, they, they don't feel safe. So what we did is to, to try to break this nation trap by working at the margins. And for instance, this everyday Nile uh, is an example. Eh? Those are photo stories collected by um, uh, photojournalists from in different Nile Basin countries. They are telling stories as, as the title of the activity of the, of the project say, like everyday stories. Everyday inter stories of daily interaction, daily use. Uh, of the river, its water by people, can be farmer, fisherman. But I think, uh, and of course, eh, it's not the big contested controversy like the Grand Ethiopian Renaissance Dam, but by working at the margins, I think we, you can find spaces to explore, to experiment, to, to try to promote new narratives and also to create connections. I think by looking at everyday Nile uh, interaction with the river, perhaps people can also uh, can find connection between an Egyptian farmer uh, and, uh, and an Ethiopian farmer, between a fisherman in Lake Victoria in Uganda and a fisherman in, in a lake in South Sudan. Why not? So this is the type of, um, this is the other, conclusion that we've reached and that we have also trying to implement, to transform the narratives by working at the margins and by transforming the narratives, trying to transform the conflict and the way people perceive it. Picking up on the term nation trap, um, when you put journalists from for lack of a better term, opposing countries, so like journalists from Ethiopia and Egypt, for example, when you put them together in the same room, 
what was their behavior towards each other and what were they most curious to know about each other to know from each other um that's a very important question because indeed what they also learned by working eh, with journalists and also re researchers eh, because you we had not only people in the same room from different uh, different countries but also from different professions so what i learned is that by creating personal relations bonds eh, you can also develop collaborative work and and project and I think people also by learning about other experience, other uh, ideas about the river, about the Nile, they get reinforced. And I think for them, it's also an opportunity to clarify their identity, their role, their contribution. One example, for instance, is the artistic coordinator of Everyday Nile who was able, is from Egypt, Roger Anis, he was able to travel to Ethiopia at the sources of the Nile <clears throat> uh, in Lake Tana. And for him was the first time in uh, Ethiopia, was also the first time to see the Nile in, in Ethiopia and to see how people um, fetch water. And in Egypt he had this idea of Ethiopia as an abundant uh, as a country where, especially on the highland, where water is abundant, but for him was very was striking, was a discovery to see that still people, in spite of having water there, they have to walk uh, a long route to to fetch water and to carry water in their home. So, <clears throat> so we had this kind of uh, discovery. Um, we also had um, a kind of clarification on our own role, contribution and also responsibility. For instance, as a researcher, um, how do we act? How do we, when we are interviewed by a journalist, what type of, uh, what idea of science do we want to um, convey? Do we have the solution? Do we have, do we point at problems? Do we believe that science as something which is let's say like the god eye that see the problem from above from a neutral position or are we also part of the problem part of the conflict so those type of conversation that unfolded which i would qualify as a dialogic conversation that's a metaphor that i learned from another project on the nile called the nile project there was a band of musicians getting together from different Nile Basin countries, getting together <clears throat> to use music to, to raise curiosity about the Nile River. And its founder, Mina Giegis, an ethnomusicologist also from Egypt, uh, told me that uh, in describing the process, he uh, was telling me that when musicians get together, first of all, they had to get to know each other because you have different uh, musical scales, different instruments in the different countries, eh? maybe different tones eh? that don't exist in other cultures. So you need to find a way to get along, to, to play together. And when you play together with musicians from other countries, you, what they did was not to create a super 
identity annihil identity but they each of the musician was uh, somehow confirming reinforce in their own identity and at the same time find, found a way to get along to play to enter in a conversation with uh, or in this case in a in a play in a music play with other musicians and that's what is called dialogic conversation different from the dialectic that we tend to see and reproduce in the in the media and indeed there was also something that inspired us uh, in our project eh, to create spaces for such dialogic conversation where you don't necessarily reach an agreement but at least you learn you discover other perspectives and you also clarify your own if you would like to explore what came out of those dialogical conversations and other activities in the project a good place to start is the website infonile.org you will find their stories done by journalists data and insights produced through collaborations between scientists working across borders training material on science communication and science communication around the nile and much more thanks for your time emanuela thanks to you it was fun to be on the other side of the mic because usually i'm the one asking questions so 